I was talking to one of my clients about this whole topic of like refunds and cancellations and whatnot. And we were trying to, to work on a cancellation policy for her website, for her business. And we came up with what she calls the Beyonce policy, which is, you know, if you buy a $500 ticket to go see Beyonce, and she's coming to your town. And then at the last minute, you're like, oh, I don't feel good. I have a little cold. Oh, I forgot to get a babysitter. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm running late at work and I can't make it. Are you going to email Beyonce and be like, Beyonce, can I have $500 back? Obviously not. You would never email Beyonce. <laughs> you can't email Beyonce. Um, and you're certainly not going to email, you know, the, the event. I mean, it's just, it's, if, if that is the case, then what do you do? You get your butt on Craigslist and you try to sell your ticket or you get your shit together and you make it to the show. And the same level of, you know, that that kind of situation is what needs to happen with small business owners too. That was Alexandra Franzen, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 104. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. This is a special edition episode of the podcast, which I'm releasing between seasons 12 and 13. I'll have season 13 for you on December 22nd, but in the meantime, I've brought the incredible Alex Franzen back to the podcast for you in this fun special episode. I'll tell you more about Alex in a sec, but in the meantime, in case you're new to Real Talk Radio, let me first share what we do here. So on this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. No one is preying on your insecurities by pitching you a 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. I am totally over that kind of thing, and my guess is that you are too. Life is complicated, you know? It's messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips and people telling us why we aren't good enough. So here at Real Talk Radio, we do things differently. I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads, you won't hear any sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you so much. You're the best. And I'm ridiculously grateful that you're helping to bring more real talk into the world. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. But first, let's talk about beliefs. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. Because when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth-tellers for truth-tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. 
As a thank you, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time, and you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for upcoming Real Talk Live events, which is the small, fun, in-person event series that kicked off in London and Portland over the past few months. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. So now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Alexandra Franzen. Alex is a writer based in Portland, Oregon. She's been writing professionally for about 10 years, and her work centers on the topics of creativity, productivity, communication, goal setting, entrepreneurship, and how to deal with difficult situations in your life and career. Her work has been featured in Time, Forbes, Newsweek, and the Huffington Post, and she's been mentioned in places like the New York Times Small Business Blog, The Atlantic, and Inc. Her next book, You're Going to Survive, a collection of true stories about adversity, rejection, and discouragement, will be released on November 1st, 2017. This book feels like a comforting chat with a friend, a friend who wants you to stand tall and strong, shake off discouragement and disappointment, and keep marching towards your goals. Alex is an incredible writer, a wonderful person, and one of my dearest friends, and I am thrilled to have her back on the podcast for a second time. In this episode, Alex shares honest stories about her experiences of rejection and disappointment throughout her career, everything from receiving mean emails to not selling enough spots in a workshop and so much more. She also talks about how to bring a project from idea to completion and tells us all about the 27 tries it took to get her new book published. I love Alex so much, and I could listen to her tell stories all day long, forever and ever. There's even a point about halfway through this episode where it starts to downpour in Portland, which is where Alex lives, and the sound of the beating rain comes through in the recording. So heads up on that, but don't worry, you can still hear her beautiful stories just fine. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Alex, welcome back to the show. Hooray! Back again, back again to talk to you about real things. (laughs) Oh my God. Can can you do that for like every episode? I need like little clips. My favorite thing is when you email me um, like little gifts that you've made of yourself, like yes. dancing and doing things. And now I can have like a little theme song to go with them. <laughs> yes. My new obsession is this website. I think it's called, and then I was like, and then I was like.com or something like that. And you can record a little video and make like a little gif of yourself. Gif, gif. I don't know what, what they're called. And it's so fun. It's like my new addiction. Yeah. Well, uh, send me them forever because I love them. They're excellent. Um, so my, <laughs> so funny. My favorite thing when we were emailing about um, you coming back on the show and what to talk about, and I asked you what you wanted to talk about, and you said in all caps, quote, Magic Mike Live, a million exclamation points. Also, Chippendales. I am turning into a male striptease expert. <laughs> This is not a joke. Uh, earlier this year, I went to see Chippendales. Chippendales, of course, are the legendary male striptease show. They wear the little bow ties and the little, like, you know, kind of tuxedo cuffs. And they came to Portland. And I just happened at the last moment to notice in the newspaper that they were performing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going. And I went. 
And then a few months later, I saw Magic Mike live in Las Vegas. And later this year, I am going back to Vegas to see Thunder Down Under. And then I will have seen all three of the world's premier male striptease review. I love you so I mean, I love you so much in general. This is so excellent. Tell me why. So why? Like why these shows? Because clearly, I mean, the Las Vegas ones, like you're traveling for them. You know, I sent you sent me a video from Magic Mike Live, which was excellent. Tell me, like, what is it? Why do you love these? Oh, let me count the ways. You know, I there's so many reasons why I love them. I think one is that just in general, I love any kind of performance where the person on stage is just 100% committed, you know, like they are just committed to the role, committed to the fantasy, like all the way. It's the reason why I love, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, or magicians like Chris Angel and David Blaine. Like I just love watching anyone who is like the best at what they do and is just totally committed to entertaining the audience and, and making everyone have an amazing time. So as from sort of an artistic standpoint, if you will, <laughs> I love that. I think I also love how you know, these kinds of shows are, there's such a reversal of real life in a way. You know, I, I think we live in a world where usually, not always, but usually it's it's women who are objectified and women who are ogled and women who are stared at and whose bodies are sort of evaluated. And, you know, and that is can be not a great feeling for a lot of women. And, and in these kinds of shows, it's like the tables are turned. It's like you go into upside down world and suddenly, you know, you as sort of the female audience member, you get to have this moment where you're like, hey, like, I like looking at that. And that's hot. And that's sexy. And whoa, like this guy is ripping off his shirt for me. <laughs> it's, it's like a total role reversal. And I think it's, it's fun and it's sexy. And you can you get the sense that the performers on stage are really, really having fun, uh, which makes the atmosphere, you know, feel delightful rather than sleazy and creepy. Mm hmm. Um, also, thirdly, the dancers in these shows are just amazing, particularly Magic Mike. It was like, I mean, if you've seen the Magic Mike movies or like the Step Up dance movies, I love those movies. Uh, I mean, they're doing backflips, they're doing breakdancing, they're climbing up ladders and swinging from the air. I mean, it's, it's nuts. It's like acrobatics, it's athleticism. It's, you know, even if they weren't taking their shirts off, <laughs> it's uh, just the dancing alone is exciting and awesome to watch. It's just a total, totally fun show. Yeah, I love the idea of going to something like just for fun. It kind of hits it. I know you and I have talked about this many times before, but that you can do stuff that's just for pleasure. And it's not like it's not necessarily productive. It's not going to lead anywhere. It's just this is something that brings me joy. And so I'm going to spend my money and my time doing this thing like that. It's such an empowering thing. It might sound really simple, but it's helpful for me when I see friends like people like you doing that. I'm like, oh, right, that's fine. That's that's like something that I should be doing, too. Absolutely. Uh, this is a theme that I've been thinking about a lot lately, actually, is, I mean, I don't know about you, but almost everyone I know works so goddamn hard. I mean, we're all, whether they have a job or they're self-employed, we're on our computers constantly, we're checking emails constantly, we have way too many projects on our plate, we're all doing too much, we work, 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 and work can be amazing and work is great, but I just feel like, personally, I want my life to include a little more spontaneity and a little more just like 
silliness sometimes and not be so serious all the time, especially when day-to-day life uh, and, and politics and everything can be so heavy. It's like, you know, one night a year, two nights a year, I want to just escape and have fun. And I think that's healthy and, and something that, you know, we should do. Yeah, I think I think so too, especially, you know, you mentioned how serious uh, things are in the world and going on. I think that sometimes, not I think, I know sometimes I can fall into a trap of where it's either or. Either I'm a silly, frivolous person who doesn't care about anything and, you know, whatever, or I'm really serious and taking action on all these things that I care about and that it, why can't it be both and, right? That you care about things and put your time and energy into the things that you care about. And then also silly, frivolous, ridiculous, magic mic live, like that there's room in not just life, but, you know, within like a personal identity to do both, which again, maybe sounds silly, but these are the kind of lessons and reminders that I need over and over. Totally. Yeah. One thing I forget who told this to me or if I read it somewhere, but it was something to the effect of, you know, human beings are capable of experiencing more than one emotion at the same time, you know, in, in any given week, um, you know, I can be incredibly depressed about what's happening in politics. I can feel fiery and motivated to take action. I can, you know, make donations and write and, and do all kinds of positive, constructive things. And I can work hard. And on Friday night, I can go to see Magic Mike Live or whatever. You know, it can all it's all part of life, right? Like it's life is not just all horrible and life is not just all frivolity. It's, it's definitely both and, or, or it can be. Mm-hmm. Well, and I find for me that it's, I live more in kind of the serious space that it takes a little bit more effort for me to push myself to do things. Like obviously we're using Magic Mike Live as an example, but I think it's a great example. And it makes me think of, I mean, one of my favorite parts of the year, these past couple of years has been when you and I and Melissa have gotten together for the weekend that the 50 shades of gray movies come out and we have our girls weekend and go and like that's completely frivolous but also not because it's lovely and it's connection and you know it's a good reminder for me that sometimes I need to plan these things spontaneity is awesome but it's also really fun to have something to look forward to like I'm already looking forward to Valentine's weekend of next year when I know that we're going to do that together I know I think it's also really important to have things scheduled on your calendar that you're looking forward to Um, I really think, and and that's not that I've like nailed this perfectly or anything, but when I have a couple of just like simple, basic pleasures every day, like nice coffee and like a little cookie or a nice workout or whatever, like basic pleasures every day. And also something that I'm looking forward to, like a show I'm going to or a a date with a friend, the combination of those two things uh, really keeps my mood most of the time, you know, in a pretty positive place. And, and of course, makes me better at the work that I do and all that stuff, because I, I know that I've got some treats on the horizon. I think mm-hmm. we all need that. Yeah, I think so, too. I also think something that I have found is that it's not only possible, but really helpful to turn like seemingly small things into a ritual or a celebration. Like I'll give you an example. Um, I think you actually just started reading the throne of glass book series, right? Yes. It's so good. It's, I have something to tell you about that. Later. Okay. It's, I mean, yes, it's so good. So my, my friend Amina is the one who was like, you have to read these books because she likes a lot of the same things I like. And so it was so fun to have a friend to basically like live text all of my emoji feelings as the books were happening. And the final book comes out, I think next fall. And we were talking, I just threw this idea out there. I was like, you should come up here, we should have, you know, basically start reading the book at the same time, like go to a cabin or something, basically have a friend's weekend that's dedicated to let's read this book and then gush about this book. And it's like something so simple, like a book coming out can actually be a reason to, you know, have a silly fun weekend with a friend. 
Totally. Um, I, this is a, a side note, but I, I just really feel I need to share a little more about Magic Mike Live in the spirit <laughs> of, of fun. And so I feel like we kind of glossed over that and I'm like bursting with feelings to share. Yes, go ahead. Okay. So first of all, <laughs> um, when we sat, I, I got front row seats because I decided we're going to go big and go big in Vegas. So we were sitting in the front row. And when you say it's, we, you mean... Me and my very straight boyfriend, Brandon, who was a very good sport and who accompanied me to the show. So we're sitting side by side in the front row. And one thing that I've noticed is that at shows like this, at a lot of different shows, um, you know, the, the MC or the performers are on stage. They're, you know, they're giving their all. They're entertaining. They're dancing. They're doing whatever. And a lot of times the audience members are... Uh, you know, maybe they're taking videos with their phones, maybe they're, you know, talking to their friends, maybe they're a little bit shell shocked and kind of like expressionless because it's like so crazy and they don't know how to react. But they're not always like giving the performers back the same energy that the performers are giving to them. Um, I am not one of those people. I am always standing there with like a huge grin on my face, like losing my mind, so excited. So what happened was at the beginning of Magic Mike Live, the MC was kind of making some introductions and she's like scanning the audience and like looking at everyone's faces. And I'm sitting there literally like, like my mouth is hanging open. I'm smiling. So (laughs) like my, I was smiling so much. My cheeks were like burning and she looked at me and she's like, what's your name? And I was like, Oh my God. And I was like, my name's Alex. And then she was like, she turned to one of the dancers on stage. I don't remember what she said exactly, but it was something like tonight, Alex represents all the women here tonight. And tonight you're going to make Alex's fantasies come true. And then the whole, she got the whole audience to start chanting, Alex, Alex, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon was just like squeezing my hand and like trying so hard not to like burst into laughter. But it was one of the most best, one of the most best moments of my life. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited about it that I can't even speak in complete sentences. And it's a moment I will never forget. And then at the end of the show, she did it again. At the end of the show, she was like, what did you think, Alex? And everyone was like, Alex. <laughs> so all of, <laughs> all of this is to say People, we need to get a life. We need to have more fun. We need to go to experience music and hike in nature and go see Magic Mike live because, yes, the world is a fucked up, scary place. And, yes, we have big work to do. But also, we need to experience how it feels to have, you know, shirtless male dancers chanting your name along with the audience. So I recommend that to you. That's such a good story. That What that brings up for me is uh, this desire to consciously like be less cool meaning yeah go like go all in be the one who's so excited and like dancing and standing on the chair and doing I remember this is kind of a a tiny side story that that what you just said brought up for me my friend Zoe here in Bend, um, she hosts every month-ish, maybe every six weeks. Um, it's called Daybreaker. I don't think – I think it happens in other cities too. It's basically an early morning – like an early weekday morning dance party, right? So like we think about going out dancing and you think of it at night, being really dressed up, you know, usually drinking's involved, right? And so for me, quitting drinking meant sort of not going out dancing really. Not that I couldn't. I just don't tend to do that type of thing that often. And yet it's so fun. And so she hosts this thing 
where it's super last minute. You get the text basically the day before that's, you know, with the location where it's going to be 715 at the morning in the morning and People just like show up either in the like the clothes they're going to wear to work or like random workout clothes or just whatever. And for 45 minutes in, you know, like a local shop that's not open yet, that the floor space has been cleared or like a tiny warehouse where artists do stuff, the location keeps changing. We just have this dance party. And the first time that I went, I was really self-conscious. It was like one of the first times that I had been in a dancing situation that wasn't either I was drunk or everyone was drunk. And I was really self-conscious and like kind of too cool for it. And then the next time that I went, I was like, fuck this. I'm going all in on this and just crazy bad dancing, like took my shoes off barefoot. Like, and it was honestly the most fun that I've had in such a long time. And I mean, since then it has been, it's one of my favorite things when I get the text, I'm like, clear the schedule, seven fifteen in the morning, going to this thing. And just, I don't know, like how much more you can get out of something when you're not so self-conscious. You know, totally. Yeah, that sounds so fun. I think they do that kind of thing here in Portland, too. I should go to one of those. Yeah, totally. Sounds amazing. Come Come with me. Yes. I love it. Totally. Yeah, we need to. Yeah, we all need to have more fun. And just I mean, if the word fun doesn't do it for you, I mean, you can call it celebrating life or being alive or whatever. But you know, we we can't just like work, 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 work all the time. Mm -hmm. We all we all need to just you know, shake loose, whatever that means for you. And again, Mm -hmm. with the both and, I think there's something powerful, at least for me, about knowing myself well enough to know that I tend not to be the person who's going to organize the spontaneous thing or necessarily like go alone to a last minute that just, I mean, not that I can't get better at that. I'm sure I can, but that it does help me to have something planned, you know, or on the schedule, like you said, or have friends that are going to take care of organizing that for you that the both and like, you can put a little work into having more fun, you know, like that's been helpful. And it's fun to look forward to something. The anticipation is like almost as much fun as the thing itself sometimes. I mean, definitely now that the first trailers for the Fifty Shades movie have come out and we're sending them to each other by email, like it's like a thing to build up over the next however many months. Yeah. It's so fun. So, okay. Pivoting topics a little bit. Um, your new book called You're Going to Survive is out this week. And I am so excited to talk about this book because I feel like the subject matter is incredibly not just necessary, but is something that literally every single person can relate to. So can you give a quick overview of what the book is about? Yes. So the book is a minute by minute synopsis of my experiences at Magic Mike Live. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. That will be my next book. I mean, listen, I will. I am here for that. I am here for that second book. (laughs) The book is a collection of poetry inspired by Chippendales. Um, No, the book, You're Going to Survive, uh, the the inspiration for the book was actually a a really bad experience that I went through about a year and a half ago, which was uh, I I helped my partner, Brandon, to open a, a brunch restaurant here in Portland. He's a chef and he wanted to open a restaurant. And, you know, I, I thought this would be this like amazing romantic thing for us to do together. And it was in a lot of ways. Um, but what happened was shortly after we opened, we got our first really, really negative Yelp review. And I remember seeing the review and I read it and you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, it doesn't matter if you get 50 compliments, it's like the one 
negative thing that you remember so intensely. And, and that's what happened for me after reading this bad review. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It made me feel sick to my stomach. I was so anxious about it. I felt like, oh my God, you know, people are going to see this review. They'll never come to our restaurant. We're doomed. We're over. Uh, it, it really sent me into kind of a tailspin for a couple of days. And out of that experience, um, I, well, first I started reaching out to friends basically and, and kind of looking for some support and some guidance. Uh, I think I didn't really realize it at the time, but I, I think I just wanted to hear stories from other people saying, oh my God, I've been there too, and you're going to be okay, and you're going to survive. And so I started reaching out to friends, just kind of for casual conversations. And then that kind of evolved into more of like me interviewing people. And I asked all different kinds of people um, the same questions, which was basically, can you tell me about a time in your career when you felt really criticized, really rejected, or really discouraged? And what happened and how did it feel and how did you get through it? And, and what did you learn from that experience? Basically like worst moment of your career and what did you learn? And people told me the most amazing stories, all kinds of stories, such, you know, vulnerable, beautiful, touching stories. And pretty quickly I realized, you know, I, I think this needs to be a book. Uh, I, I have a feeling other people would find such relief and, and comfort from these stories in the way that I am. So I put it together. Uh, I initially created an ebook. I released the ebook for free to my mailing list as just kind of like an end of the year gift. That turned into a book proposal. Um, that turned into 27 rejection emails and then eventually a book deal and, uh, and then an expanded book. And, and now it's, it's done. It's, it's amazing. I, I almost can't believe it. But yeah, You're Going to Survive is, uh, is finished and it's going to be released November 1st which I believe is the day this podcast comes out. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, okay, so I want, this is maybe like a little meta, but backing up a little bit. So this idea of having a book that's a collection of true stories about adversity, rejection, discouragement, and you mentioned get getting rejected, you know, when looking for publication, I think you just said 27 times. So tell the story of like getting this book, like this book about rejection was rejected. Tell me about that and kind of what you learned through the experience of making this book happen. Oh yeah, so meta. So I this isn't the first book I've had published. I, I did get a book deal about three, four years ago. I had a, a nonfiction book came out and then another book came out. Um, but I haven't had anything published since then. So it had been a couple years since I'd had a traditional publishing deal. Um, so yeah, I put together a book proposal, which is typically what you do with a nonfiction book. Um, I, I emailed my first publisher and shared the proposal with them, and, and they sort of said, you know, mm, not quite right for us. I also emailed my, my previous literary agent, and she said, oh, what a beautiful book, but she actually was retiring from the industry, and she said, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm you know, as of now, I'm not doing this work anymore, I, I can't help you. And I was like, uh-oh, like, my publisher said no, my agent's retiring, <laughs> I'm sort of starting from scratch, in a way, in trying to get this book into the world. So I just basically started cold emailing. I started sending query emails, uh, which is kind of like the, in the publishing world, it's kind of like a cover letter, you know, when you're applying for a job. I started emailing literary agents. I started emailing publishers, uh, sending them my proposal, sending them info about the book. And I emailed 20 people and every single one of them said no. And they had a, you know, some of them were very polite about it. Some of them had, you know, various reasons why. Some of them just said, it's not right for us, you know, no explanation. Um, 
And after the 20th rejection, you know, I uh, intellectually, I know that when you're a writer, rejection is absolutely part of the process and we don't have to take it personally. I know that intellectually, but emotionally, of course, I was feeling a little discouraged. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I, I remember like looking at my inbox and I literally had like 20 rejections stacked up in a row and I was like, oh boy, here we go. Um, but it, it actually was funny because I, I, I kept thinking about the, the subject matter of the book and realizing like this is sort of the reason why I wrote this book is to help people through discouraging experiences just like this. And I sort of need to take my own medicine in a way and, and keep marching forward on this path and, and not give up too quickly. So I think altogether, I didn't count it up exactly at the end, but I think it would took about 27 tries before I found a publisher who was interested, which really looking back is, is not that many. I mean, I almost gave up after 20 or 21, uh, but I am, I am glad that I did not. Uh, I'm glad that I put in just a little more effort because that's all it took in the end to find a publisher who, who believed in the project and who was excited about it. And it's, it's been great working with them so far. Mm-hmm. I'm always really interested in stories like this because in hindsight, in retrospect, it's it's relatively simple to say, you know, well, if I would have quit after 20, then I never, you know, if I wouldn't have done these six or seven more, which in theory, right, six, and seven, six or seven more tries is not that many tries. If you wouldn't have put that in, then you never would have gotten it published, right? And like that sound, like I love that message of just keep going, just keep going. And yet also sometimes making a change or giving up on something is the right choice. And I mean, there's obviously, of course, no easy answer for this, but I'm just curious how you think about that with your own work. Or was there a time where you tried, 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 and then wound up pivoting or giving up? Yeah, well, it was interesting because in the process of trying to find a publisher for this book, I went through many kind of emotional ups and downs. And I, you know, there was times when I thought, what am I doing? I should just self-publish this. Like, this is pointless looking for a publisher. What does it even matter? And then there were other times where I was like, no, you know, I really want a traditional publisher. I want this book to be in bookstores. You know, I want the support that a publisher can provide. And then there was other times where I was like, you know, I should hold out until I get a book deal with like a major publisher, like, you know, a Penguin or Random House. And then there were other times where I was like, ah, I don't care. Like, just anyone, please <laughs> publish this book. So there was a lot of ups and downs and ups and downs. And one pivot that I made, which I think ultimately was kind of what led to some success was rather than just cold emailing people that I didn't know at all to tell them about my book, um, I actually started reaching out to, to friends and colleagues and people I do know. And I think I actually at one point even mentioned in one of my newsletters to my mailing list, you know, just kind of very subtly as a PS, like, something to the effect of that I was looking for a book deal or, or something like that. I, I don't even remember what I said, but I, I started to tell more people. I, I didn't keep it a secret. Uh, I told, you know, clients that I was looking for a new agent or publisher. I, I just made sure that everyone in my community knew that I was trying to do this, um, which is a little scary, right? I think sometimes with goals and projects like, we keep it to ourselves and we sort of keep it a secret and we, and we don't tell the people closest to us that we're working on this thing. But so I really made an effort to do that. Um, and then what ended up happening was kind of one thing led to another and through the grapevine, 
I actually wound up getting an email from someone who subscribes to my newsletter saying, hey, I'm friends with this woman who does this thing, who knows this person. Like, in other words, it was a it was a personal connection that I didn't even know I had that ultimately led to the publisher who was interested in my book, mm-hmm. which I think is so often how it happens. Um, and it's a great reminder to me that when it feels like you're just knocking on a door that's locked and won't open, there might be kind of like a side door that's that's right there within reach if you're just brave enough to ask someone for help or to let people know what you're trying to do. Yeah, I think there's so many good pieces of advice in that. that this idea of, first of all, being willing to ask for help, right? Which like oftentimes we're not. Being, you know, willing to throw a wide net. You know, you don't know what's going to come back from that. And then I think I mean, and this is, it's such good advice. This idea of, you know, you can be really attached to the heart of the thing, like your vision, maybe the content of the book in this example, and the fact that you knew you wanted to get it out to as many people as possible through this publishing route, but then not being so attached to the way that it had to happen. Exactly like you said, you know, you thought it had to happen through sending these query letters and essentially cold pitching and like going, you know, marching down this path. And okay, well, what if there's another way, right? Like knowing what it is that you're committed to and like less flexible on and then being willing to, I don't know, be surprised and be open to it sort of manifesting in a different, I don't know, set of circumstances. Yeah. And and you and I have talked about this so many times. Like this is the funny thing about setting goals, I think, is like, you know, it's I love goals and I love to set goals. But on the other hand, you know, we don't, we don't control everything. And so it's, it's important to, I think, to set goals in such a way that, you know, you're, you're holding the vision of what it is you want. But yeah, like you say, the the path to get there can be winding and flexible. Um, I know for me with this book, I knew I, you know, I wanted to get this book out in the world. I wanted it to reach an audience that was bigger than just my little corner of the internet. And I wanted it to be in paperback or hardback. And I ideally, I wanted it to be in bookstores so that just the average person could wander in and spot it on the shelf and grab it and take it home. And, and that was kind of the vision and how I got there, which publisher, whether I got a big advance or not, you know, all of those little details in the end. I just kind of decided it doesn't matter. You know, I just want to march towards the vision of my book is out. It's in the stores. Um, And I think that's what kind of helped me to get through some of the more discouraging days and weeks where it felt like nothing was happening. Um, Just holding on to that, like holding on tightly, but also kind of loosely (laughs) to that, to the end game that was in my mind. Mm -hmm. So with the book centering on true stories of people dealing with difficult things, like specifically in their career or particularly in their career, what I would love to do, because I'm super curious and love hearing stories, I would love to name a couple of topics, like specific difficult things, and have you tell me one of your own stories about a time that maybe that happened to you. Oh my God, I love this. It's like a your worst moment ever game. Yes, <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> and then we can go back to talking about Magic Mike. Um, oh, perfect. So, so like, for example, tell me about a time where you received a mean email from a newsletter subscriber or like a nasty unsubscribe or something, something like that. Oh, um, yes. So, I mean, the, the, the most striking story that comes to mind, because it was a really interesting one, was a couple of years ago, 
I got an, this was when I, whenever somebody unsubscribed to my newsletter back in those days, I would get an email notification. Uh, I don't get those notifications anymore. I turn them off because I just don't want to see them. Uh, but back in these days, I would get a little email every time someone unsubscribed. And when someone unsubscribes to your newsletter, you know, there's that little form that's like, tell us why you're leaving, or do you have any comments, or, you know, why do you hate us so much, or whatever <laughs> it says. And, uh, and so there's a little box where people can type a comment, and then and I would get all of those comments emailed to me. And there was one day, I, I opened my email, and there was an unsubscribe message, and I opened it, and I read it. And the message that had been typed into the comment box was... Uh, really, really hurtful uh, and and kind of weird. It, it almost felt as though the person writing it, like it didn't occur to them that I was going to read it, which sounds strange. Like it, it said something to the effect of like, I used to really enjoy Alexandra's writing, um, but lately I feel like she's just so arrogant. It makes me sick. I can't stand it. Um, you know, I, I, I wish she hadn't become like this. I mean, it was just a, a really weird, mean email. Um, and I read it and I kind of sat with it and I, I thought, you know, should I just delete it? Should I move on? Should I respond? You know, if I respond, is that just going to make things worse? I didn't know what to do. Um, but ultimately I decided, you know what? I do want to respond. And I, I wrote her back and I, you know, very politely just said, you know, I'm sorry you haven't been enjoying my newsletter. I saw that you unsubscribed. That's no problem at all, of course. Um, and then I kind of said something to the effect of like, you know, you mentioned that you feel I've become uh, arrogant. I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, you know, I, it's true that over the last five years or so, I've enjoyed a little more success with my writing and my business and, and everything I share along the way. I, I try to share with you uh, and with the people reading. And, you know, if that comes across as arrogant, that's certainly not my intent. I'm, I'm just trying to share, you know, the exciting things that are happening and that I've learned and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I wrote like a very polite, you know, kind of farewell email. And I sent it off and I kind of figured like, whatever, she'll never respond. Um, she responded almost immediately. And she said, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed I didn't think you would ever read what I said. I was been, I've been in a terrible mood. I don't know what I was doing. Like she basically said, oh my God, oh my God. I was just kind of venting into the internet and I'm so sorry and I, di I didn't really mean it. And, and she started like backpedaling, backpedaling, backpedaling. And it we actually ended up exchanging several emails back and forth and it became this really interesting dialogue. And by the end of it, she basically said, I'm going to think carefully about what I type into the internet from now on, <laughs> which was, it was a totally unexpected turn of events. And for me, it was a really powerful reminder that just because someone types something onto the internet about you or your work, that doesn't mean it's true, you know, positive mm -hmm. or negative. It, it's just someone typing words into a comment box, you know, and, and, and they may really regret what they said, or it might not be true, or they might be having a terrible day and they might be venting and it, you know, long story short, it, it might not have anything to do with you really. Um, and that, that's been a really important reminder that I've carried into the future and that I try to remember, even though it's really hard, um, especially when negative things come up. Um, but yeah, that's, that's probably the, the strangest 
uh, negative email that I've ever gotten, but it kind of had a beautiful conclusion in the end. And, and we sort of parted ways with no hard feelings. And it was kind of a, a learning moment for both of us. Yeah, that sort of reminder that there's a real person on the other end of the computer, like you just think that you're typing something into this, you know, comment box in the ether, which maybe sometimes you are, you know, but that if you're sending an email or you're doing it, there's always another person. It doesn't mean that you can't, you know, criticize if that's or complain about something or, you know, ask for whatever if that's warranted. But it's like there's such a difference in tone. Like what I take from that story is just a reminder of who I am as the person typing also to be like, it's okay. <laughs> for real. Yeah. And it's something I really try to think about when I'm, you know, typing something into a random internet box or filling out a form or sending an email. It's so important for all of us to remember, like, eventually these words that I'm typing are going to reach a living human being. And these words are going to affect their day uh, in some way or another. And we all need to remember that because it's so easy to forget. Um, I remember I had a moment, I don't know if it was before or after this incident with the email where I was on the phone with like a customer service person and it was kind of a frustrating phone conversation. And, and I, I noticed my, my tone just getting really snarky with this person. And it's, I didn't even realize it was happening until I sort of heard myself and I was like, Oh shit, like I sound like a total bitch right now. And it was totally unnecessary. It wasn't even their fault. Um, but it's amazing how easily we can slip into that, right? Whether we're on the phone or we're typing something into the internet. Um, and it's so important, I think, to just catch ourselves and go, no, you know, remember that these words are going to affect someone eventually. Mm -hmm. This whole subject of negative feedback or, and I don't even want to say criticism because it's genuinely fine if like work that I create is not the right fit for someone. That's fine. It's more, I'm more talking about um, like with what I'm going to say next, like just sort of the like meanness, right? Or like that the, the way that sometimes things are conveyed, like you said, snarky or, you know, cynical or aggressive or something like that. And I've given myself a really hard time over the years about, you know, well, you should just have thicker skin or the only way that you can create work is if you, that people love is if you're also okay with the fact that people hate it and all of those sort of little sayings that people throw around, which at the heart of it, like I think a lot of it is true, but also I'm a person and I have feelings and what if it's fine that it always bothers me when someone's mean to me. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but it's, I was talking to my therapist. <laughs> this is the start of a good story. I was talking to my therapist about this and about, you know, potential like visions and dreams for my work over the next, you know, basically in 2018, you know, next year. And some of the things that I want to do would essentially put me on a bigger stage, which means more visibility, which means more people, more potential for people to not like you. And that that is scary for me. And what if that's fine, right? Like I keep looking for like a third option of, I don't know, some skill set to build or develop. And maybe some of that comes over time, but also it's never going to feel good when someone's a dick to you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it always hurts. That's definitely something that came up a lot in, you know, as I was interviewing people for this book, um, it always hurts, you know, it's never fun to get a piece of negative feedback or to be bullied online or to have a, you know, a customer demand a refund or whatever, like, you can be the most zen chilled out, you know, Dalai Lama person in the world. And when that happens, it's gonna suck, you know, you're gonna feel Ugh, you know, even if that feeling only lasts for a few moments, like we're all human, we have feelings. And I think the the skill, I guess, is 
you know, when you experience that moment of discouragement, it's building more resilience and, and kind of being able to shake it off and bounce back into your day a little faster rather than letting it like hang over you for days and days and days and totally like derail your mood. I think it's, it's about re- resilience and kind of reentering your, your positive mindset as quickly as possible. And, and that I think is a skill that, that can come with practice and with time. Yeah, I think so too. And I also think, and this is, I mean, mostly just me preaching to myself, I think that the only way that that happens is through repeated exposure. Like I can, you know, think all the nice thoughts about resilience, but I mean, you build resilience through experiencing things to which you have to be resilient, right? And after which you have to be resilient. And so I think some of this, as much as I don't want that to be the answer, it is a matter of volume. You know, like the more you put yourself out there, the more you get rejected. The, you know, if, if you're only doing one thing every six months, then there's so much attached, like so much emotional baggage to that one thing that, you know, if you're only writing one blog post every six months and then someone doesn't like it, if you, you know, as opposed to if you're doing something more regularly. And I don't know, I think maybe that's just my experience, but I think some of this is a matter of volume. It's so true. My mom actually told me a story, which I I put into my book because, you know, putting mom stories into your book is always awesome. Um, which was back when she was an opera singer, which was her first career, she got a horrible review in the newspaper, in the Los Angeles Times. And the reviewer uh, wrote, you know, wonderful things about the opera that she was in. They had said great things about all of her castmates. But then when they were writing about her performance, they called her voice shrill and show busy. And, you know, as an opera singer, having a reviewer call your voice shrill is like, like a knife in the gut you know that's the the last thing you want a reviewer to say about your performance and so this is in the newspaper and everyone's reading it and my mom was devastated I mean she was she was so hurt her feelings were hurt you know she questioned her her talent her identity everything it was an awful moment for her um and I asked her you know there's more to the story that's the that's the short version but I asked her you know how did you how did you get over it? Like, how did you, how did you move on? How did you find a way to keep performing and be okay after something like that, which was like so embarrassing and humiliating. And what she basically said was, I was really busy. You know, like she was, she was doing a seven, eight shows a week. She was doing rehearsals for another show. She had three kids at home. Uh, you know, she had a husband, she had friends. She basically said, I was busy. Like I was busy creating and rehearsing and performing and I didn't have time to dwell on this one negative review, even though it was very painful in the moment. And so, yeah, I think there is something about, you know, staying active, staying busy, creating, um, you know, volume that you're creating. I think the more that you're sort of working and creating and active in the world, the, the less sort of time and space you have to let one negative thing drag you down. Absolutely. There's a fine line between allowing yourself the space to feel your feelings, especially if they're, you know, like we're talking about discouraged, upset, you know, depressed feelings. I think there's a fine line between that and indulging in the misery, right? Or like really like raking yourself over the coals for it. Like you can give yourself the time and space to feel it and then move on. There is a point at which like digging into the feelings becomes counterproductive. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Paul Jarvis, another guy that I interviewed for the book who, have you interviewed him for your podcast? Yep, I have. Because he's the best. Everyone's internet boyfriend. Um, He told a story or or he kind of shared a technique rather for the book, which was he gives himself uh, what he calls the one day rule. So if he gets like a really negative piece of feedback or if, you know, anything just discouraging and happens, 
in his work, he, he allows himself one day to sort of be like grumpy and venty and frumpy about it. And then once that day is over, like it is done. He washes his hands of it. He's not allowed to complain to his wife about it. Like it's over. And he just sort of forces himself to move on. And, and much like my mom, you know, he's a busy guy. He's always got, you know, newsletters to write and podcasts to record and work to do and clients and customers and classes. So he just dives back into the, the flow of things. And, uh, and that's what keeps him, you know, creating and feeling resilient and strong. Mm-hmm. I like the one day rule, though. I think that's a, a good one to borrow. Yeah, I had another author uh, writer on the show some seasons ago, Veronica Chambers, who's wonderful. And she said something very similar. We were talking about rejection. And I don't think it was a full day. I think it was, I don't remember exactly what the time span was, but it was a very distinct, you know, I get this amount of time and then time to move on. And so, <laughs> yeah, hearing that again is a good reminder. Yeah. Okay, so tell me a story then with this idea of discouragement in our careers. I think something that that makes me think of is maybe a time where you launched something and it didn't sell the way that you had hoped or you know you had a certain number of spots available for a workshop and you know didn't even come close to that or you know just something along those lines. Tell me a story from that. Oh, yeah. A a million stories. Not a million, maybe 10. But here's one. (laughs) Um, There there was a workshop that I was doing a couple of years ago. It was a workshop called Write Yourself Into Motion. And it was a writing workshop for uh, mainly for entrepreneurs who wanted to write, you know, their website language and their newsletters and their product descriptions and their bio and kind of like business oriented writing. And it was such a fun workshop. Uh, I love doing it. I, I did it about 20 times over the course of a year or two. You know, I traveled all over the world. Uh, it was it was awesome. It was like one of the most fun things I've ever done in my career. And somewhere in the midst of that kind of workshop teaching tour, I decided I wanted to do one of these workshops in Los Angeles, which is my hometown. And uh, I was super excited. It's always fun to go back to LA to visit friends and my family. And it's, you know, it's where I grew up. It's a a special place to me. And it's a big city. You know, I figured it'll be no problem to sell tickets for a workshop in Los Angeles. There's 10 million people there. (laughs) Like there's gotta be people who want to come. And at this point uh, in the tour, pretty much every single workshop I had announced had sold out pretty quickly. They were all full or they were almost full. Uh, It had been a very, a really successful run up until that point. So I announced the the workshop, you know, hey, I'm I'm adding another date in LA and here's when it's happening and yada, yada. And, you know, I'm kind of expecting, like, I'm sure this will fill up really quickly, of course. And a week goes by and I think I got, I think I sold three tickets, maybe three or four tickets. That was pretty unusual. There's like 25 seats that I'm trying to fill. And then another week went by and I sold maybe three more tickets. And a couple more weeks went by and I sold no tickets. And meanwhile, the date of the workshop is like, you know, it's coming up. It's around the corner. And I'm looking at my list and I realize like, whoa, you know, I I was hoping for 25 students like I normally have. And I have six, I have six people signed up. And it felt really embarrassing. I, I felt a lot of shame about it, actually, like like this was a dirty secret or something. And um, and I also felt really confused. Like, did I did I do something wrong? Like, was this the wrong city, the wrong dates? Like, why why is this one workshop not filling? It seemed very odd to me. Um, 
And so, I, yeah, I remember I printed out the list of, of the names of people who had signed up to be there. And I, I read all of their names and I looked at all their contact info. And I, I noticed, you know, some of them were coming from San Diego, from San Francisco, flying in from other cities to be at this at this workshop in Los Angeles. And, you know, I'll be really honest, like I, I was at a point where I was like, I've never done this before, but maybe I just need to cancel it. You know, maybe it's this is just not going to work. It's not going to fill up like maybe I should cancel, you know, due to low sales. Um but while, while I was looking at the names of the six people who were coming, I just, when I thought about canceling it, it just, it felt bad. It felt wrong. You know, it kind of made me feel sick to my stomach. And I felt like these six people um, have said they're going to show up and be there and I need to show up for them. And whether this workshop has six people or 18 or 25 or whatever, like, we're going to have a great time and it's happening. So I kind of had a turnaround in that moment. And what I ended up doing was I, I emailed those six people and I decided to be just totally honest with them. And I said, Hey guys, so excited to see you in LA. It's coming up soon. As you know, uh, we're going to have a great weekend together. And, you know, just so you know, for whatever reason, ticket sales for this workshop has, have been really slow. I've got a lot of empty space. So I invite all of you to bring along a friend for free, no charge, you know, bring your mom, bring your sister, bring your business partner, bring your kid, uh, bring two people, bring grandma, bring anyone that you love. And let's just fill this room with wonderful people and have an amazing time. And I sent out that email and they were stunned. They were like stupefied. They were so excited. They all emailed me back immediately. And they were like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is so cool. And, and I felt so happy and I felt so excited. That's like, I could feel my energy totally changing around the whole event. And the event ended up being like probably one of my favorite workshops I've ever done. Um, you know, was it a big moneymaker compared to other events and workshops that I've done? No. Um, but in terms of like the joy and the energy and the memories that we made, it was like a, a really like a peak moment of my career. It was so beautiful. And the, the group was so diverse and so interesting. We had like a mom bring her teenage son and he was a champion swing dancer and he gave everyone a dance class during our lunch break. And it was, it was just the best, you know? And my takeaway from that was, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing that I, I truly was on the verge of canceling the whole thing, all because I was embarrassed that I hadn't sold the number of tickets that I thought I should sell. And I'm so glad I didn't. I'm so glad that I kept it going and that I just kind of embraced what it was. And, uh, and it turned out to be something better than I really could have even imagined. Mm, so. That's such a beautiful story. You have been a really important teacher for me around the subject of showing up and not being flaky and not bailing, which is obviously something that I know that you care about. And I think we've talked about before, maybe even last time you were on the show that you've written about before. And so I would love for you to share, um, because your cancellation policies very much inspired my own cancellation policies, you know, for events and stuff like that, where along sort of the trajectory of your career, either did you start to feel strongly about this idea of, you know, showing up and not being flaky or, um, I'm just kind of curious where that comes from, because I think it's, it's really quite unique. Ooh, well, there was kind of a pivotal moment in my life, actually, when I was about 
Oh, probably like 18, 18, 19 years old. I, I was, I was in college in Los Angeles and I was kind of a flake. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a bad person, but like many people, um, you know, I would make plans and I would flake out and I would, you know, traffic in LA is really bad. And it would, yeah, you know, I just sort of, I was just kind of flaky, you know, I, I didn't really follow through on a lot of things that I said I would do. And I just kind of, you know, floated along like that for a while. And then, uh, my, at the time, my brother's then wife, uh, they actually ended up getting divorced. That's a whole other story. But my brother's then wife, uh, invited me over to their place for dinner and I lived on, you know, the east side of town, like kind of almost close to Pasadena. They lived on the west side in Santa Monica. So, you know, it's a big drive to get across L.A. Uh, but she invited me for dinner. She invited me like a month in advance. She was really excited about it. She, she loved to cook. She's like a total like Martha Stewart kind of character. And she was she was so excited to see me. It had been a long time. And I was excited, too. Um, then the day rolls around and, you know, it's, it's kind of like drizzly out and I'd had a long day at school and I had things to study for that I procrastinated on and traffic was really bad and this and that. And, and, you know, like an hour before the dinner is supposed to start, I texted her like a coward and said, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm just really not feeling up for it tonight. You know, lame excuse, insert lame excuse here. And, I, I, you know, I just kind of fired off the text and figured, okay, whatever, you know, moving on. And she called me back and I was kind of like startled and I, I answered the phone and she wasn't, you know, she wasn't mean about it, but she just told me, you know, very honestly, um, I'm really disappointed. I was really looking forward to seeing you. It's been a long time. I went and got a special Cornish game hen. I've been roasting it all afternoon. Like she's like, you know, she had made this like special dinner. Um, she was like, I thought you were going to sleep over. I set up the guest bedroom for you. I mean, she was, she was genuinely disappointed. And, and she finished by just saying like, you know, it's really not cool what you did. And she just kind of left it at that. And it was sort of the first time that someone had like called me out on my bullshit in a way. And I was so embarrassed, but in a, in a good way, you know, I, I kind of realized I don't want to be this person anymore. You know, I, I don't want to be the person who doesn't show up. And I really made an effort after that point to change that, that quality about myself. And, you know, it's, of course, it's still something I'm working on and no one is perfect, but I've gotten a lot better <laughs> since then uh, because I didn't want to create that feeling for someone else again. And I didn't want to, you know, break promises to myself again either. So, yeah, that was, that was a pivotal moment in my, in my formative years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you, you know, you're sort of, policies around refunds and, uh, you know, event tickets and that type of stuff definitely inspired me to have sort of lovingly firm policies of my own, right? And it was interesting the first time that I saw it playing out in a way that felt like beautiful and felt to me, oh yeah, this is why I have these policies was actually um, the Real Talk Live event that I hosted in Portland that you were the featured guest for. Um, There was one attendee 
who at the last minute couldn't come. And one of the options, you know, that I list in terms of in the cancellation section, you know, if, if you can't come, here are your options. And one of them is to give the ticket to someone else, which sounds obvious, but, you know, maybe we don't always think of that. And this attendee gave the ticket to someone else who came at the last minute and they just worked it out between them. And there was an email in my inbox once I checked my email later that day, but it was just, it was so nice where in the past, I think it would have been, you know, either someone just not showing up or asking for a refund, which is something that I don't do, you know, in these situations. And it was just, it was really nice to see, oh, this other person got to come and I got to meet her and it was wonderful. And I know she had a great time and that wouldn't have happened without, you know, that. So it's always nice to see how encouraging people to sort of show up and work those things out on their own can pay off. Absolutely. Yeah. I I started, I think I wrote uh, my first sort of cancellation policy, maybe six months, a year after I started doing events and workshops, because I noticed that people were flaking out. And it was, um, I mean, quite honestly, it was really stressful for me. At, At that time, it was it was, and to this day, really, mostly, it was just me, you know, producing these workshops, finding the venues, figuring out the catering, you know, making all the payments, selling the tickets, processing the orders, making sure everyone knows where to go and what to bring and, and teaching the workshop itself and, and, and dealing with, you know, 20 to 25 students and their, their emotions and their needs and everything. I mean, it was a lot that I was carrying on my shoulders. And, you know, when someone or when four people email the night before the event is supposed to begin at 11 p.m. and say, you know, oh, I, I, I didn't find a dog sitter, I can't come or, or you know, whatever. Um, you know, look, I, I know that things happen in life sometimes that are that are not preventable, but it's it's kind of a bummer, you know, for, for everyone. And it was, I remember after having several things like that happen with several events, I was like, enough. You know, I, I, I need to have some kind of reasonable, loving, but firm policy around cancellations and refunds, because I, I can't have, you know, three, four five people just bail at the last second and all want their money back uh, for an event that, you know, I, as a small business owner, I'm, I'm trying to put together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I word it in such a way that it's basically, if you, if you buy a ticket and you can't come for any reason, you can switch to another event, you know, cause I usually do a couple of classes each year. Um, you can also apply it, your, what you've paid as sort of a credit for one of my online classes. So that's another option. It's kind of, you know, transfer into the online class, I guess you could say. Um, you can give your ticket to a friend or you can sell your ticket to a friend. And it's, it's your responsibility to figure out what you're going to do and what you want. It's not my responsibility to, um, you know, to deal with this last minute drama that you've created for both of us. And that policy has been really successful. Um, you know, people read it and they understand and I make sure that they see it before they purchase anything so that they're making a really thoughtful, you know, discerning decision. Um, and of course, there's always exceptions to every rule. You know, I, I've had people email me with a, you know, a genuine medical crisis or their mom's just diagnosed with cancer. And they're, you know, there are times, of course, when just awful, unexpected things happen. And in those situations, I always am willing to bend the rules and, you know, find some other way, whether it's a refund or something else to, to just make their life a little more bearable. Um, but you know, if it's not a crisis, if it's just, I flaked, I'm lazy, I didn't plan well, um, or I changed my mind in those situations, I really feel, you know, look, it's up to you 
to figure out what you're going to do with this purchase that you made. It's it's not my responsibility to fix this. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, it's been an interesting thing for me, kind of circling back to what we were saying before the story you shared um, uh, about the person who had typed into the unsubscribe box, you know, the, all those awful things and making, you know, then the flip side making me think, okay, be more careful with what I type. I feel the same way about, you know, if I buy a ticket to something and it's not an actual emergency, why I can't come, like, I'm not going to email them for a refund. I'm going to try to figure out, like, it's, it's just interesting how putting these things in place as a business owner, right? Like you think about how you want to be treated and respected and all of that type of stuff. It does, definitely for me at least, you know, like trickle into other areas of my life too, that it's made me a better consumer, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I I think when you are, when you're running a business of any kind, you, you totally become a better consumer because you, you know how difficult it can be to keep all the wheels turning and you become a little bit more respectful and thoughtful. Um, there's a really funny little anecdote. I was talking to one of my clients about this whole topic of like refunds and cancellations and whatnot. And we were trying to, to work on a cancellation policy for her website, for her business. And we came up with what she calls the Beyonce policy, which is, you know, if you buy a $500 ticket to go see Beyonce and she's coming to your town and then at the last minute you're like, oh, I don't feel good. I have a little cold. Oh, I forgot to get a babysitter. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm running late at work and I can't make it. Are you going to email Beyonce and be like, Beyonce, can I have $500 back? Obviously not. You would never email Beyonce. You can't email Beyonce. <laughs> you can't email Beyonce. Um, and you're certainly not going to email, you know, the the event. I mean, it's just, it's if, if that is the case, then what do you do? You get your butt on Craigslist and you try to sell your ticket or you get your shit together and you make it to the show. And the same level of, you know, that, that kind of situation is what needs to happen with small business owners too, because it's really unfair and, and difficult and stressful to email a small business owner at the last second um, because of poor planning on your part and then try to demand a refund. It's just really damaging like for our whole community. So my, uh, my client calls this her Beyonce policy. And she's basically like, <laughs> uh, if Beyonce would not give you a refund, uh, then neither will I. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I do think, I think that's a thing that's often not talked about is you know, one of the beautiful things about the small business, and like you said, you know, you're the one who's doing all those things you listed out in terms of the workshop. I mean, that's my experience as well. You know, when you are the person, one of the great benefits of that is that you have this sort of accessibility and level of relationship with the people who are coming, students, clients, that type of stuff that, you know, Beyonce, for example, doesn't have, right, with the the folks that come to her shows. And yet the flip side of that is that the accessibility oftentimes means that people will ask for or demand or request things like would never never happen in another situation if they didn't have your personal email. Totally. Yeah. It, it is. There are pros and cons for sure. Like I, I really value intimacy and personalization. You know, I, I like emailing everyone who's coming to my retreats and workshops personally. And, you know, if it's a small enough group, I'll usually chat with them on the phone or Skype beforehand. I, I want to get to know them. I invest a lot of time and energy, you know, into, into having that, that personal connection with everyone. And I love that. It's, it's one of the reasons I I want to have, you know, kind of a a small business, so to speak. But yeah, then the flip side is, is issues with boundaries and issues with, you know, people making requests that would just be totally unthinkable or unreasonable in any other situation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's, you know, I think the bottom line is, 
we can all work on ourselves to be a little less flaky and to just do what we say we're going to do and show up for ourselves and show up for other people. Um, it's always something that we can, all of us can kind of tighten up a little bit and it just feels so much better for everyone when we, when we operate in that way. Amen. So when you think back over your career, is there a favorite, this might be a strange question, but a favorite disappointment or rejection that comes to mind? Like, and what I mean by favorite is like something that, you know, opened up a new door for you that wouldn't have happened otherwise, or that you learned like a huge lesson from, or, you know, when you think back over all the different sort of periods of rejections or disappointment, or, you know, maybe dealing with whether it's online bullying or feeling invisible or unimportant, or just anything that's happened, do you have something that sticks out as a favorite? Favorite disappointment. Um, you know, the, the one story that comes to mind right away is there was a time uh, before I was self-employed when I, I had a traditional nine to five job and I, I worked in the public broadcasting industry and I had a little cubicle and the whole dealio and I was pretty miserable. Um, you know, I, I think I knew in my gut that I was just not meant to be a cubicle person. Uh, but I, at that time, I didn't really know what else I would rather be doing or what else I could be doing. Um, so like, I felt pretty stuck. And there was an opportunity uh, that, I, that I had to apply for a new job within the same company. And this new job, uh, it would have been you know, a big step up in terms of responsibility. My salary would have been, you know, almost twice as much as I'd been previously earning. I would have, you know, who knows, maybe my own office, not just a cubicle or a bigger cubicle. Or, you know, it was a, there was a lot of sort of like perks and benefits associated with this new job. And I was encouraged to apply for it. And I did. And in the end, I didn't get the new job. And I remember going out for coffee with the guy who uh, would have been my new manager and he you know, we'd had a couple interviews and he took me out for coffee and he, he explained to me, you know, you're, you're not getting the job uh, and I wanted to thank you for applying and so on and so forth. And I, in that moment, I was so crushed and devastated because I sort of felt like this was, this was it. Like if I had, if I could have just gotten this new job, maybe I would have been so much happier at work. But then another part of me knew like, that's not true. And, you know, this would have probably just been more of the same, just with a higher salary. Um, long story short, though, because of that conversation and because I didn't get that job that I wanted so badly, it forced me to really confront just how unhappy I was uh, working in that environment. And it, it that was the moment when I realized I need to quit. And I need to just not, you know, not think about it, but actually do it. And I need to figure out another kind of career that's going to make me happier because I can't just stay here for another 10, 15 years um, until I graduate, you know, from the cubicle to the office. It's, I know that's not right for me. So what's interesting, though, is looking back, if, if I had gotten that job, you know, if they had offered me that new job with the fancier job title and the bigger paycheck, I probably would have taken it and I probably would have done it, you know, who knows, maybe for another five, 10 years. And it's, it's really interesting to look back at that kind of fork in the road and realize what a fucking blessing that they didn't offer me that job because 
because they didn't, my life veered in a totally different direction. And I ended up quitting my job and becoming a freelance writer and eventually kind of establishing my own business and becoming an author and writing books and traveling the world and meeting the love of my life. And, you know, all of these, all of these other things and seeing magic, Mike live in Vegas, (laughs) all these things transpired uh, because they said no. Um, And I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful for that. Mm. I love this idea of sort of reflecting on the fork in the road moments, right? And obviously, we have no idea where anything would or would not have led, right? So it's a little bit of speculation. But I, when you were telling that story, I remember earlier in my career, I guess my former career, I used to run a children's summer day camp. I was the director of a day camp for five years. And um, for lots of reasons, it was time for me to, to leave that job. But as it was, I think it was my last year there. Maybe it was my last year, I think. And um, I had a blog. I had I started blogging in July of 2007, and it was completely a personal blog, and it wasn't, you know, a business or attached to anything else. It was just I have always had this really strong drive to basically tell the truth about my life in real time. <laughs> and whether that's sometimes I think that's great, sometimes I think that can get you in trouble, but I can't seem to not do that. And, um, you know, so I had the blog and my ultimate boss at this camp, uh, knew, and you know, the board of directors, he knew and that I had this blog. And so I thought, oh, well he knows, and it's not a problem and it's never been a thing. And you know, what could be a very long story short, the other members of this board, uh, wound up finding out that I had a blog and obviously, you know, me, I am, you know, not very, uh, I swear I don't censor myself. You know, I'm, if I'm telling the truth about stuff, it's often about topics that maybe aren't, you know, polite conversation or whatever BS. And these older folks that were on this board were really shocked and displeased and angry. And uh, they basically wound up calling me in for this board meeting or this like special meeting. And they basically said, you know, it's either, you know, you, you like they, they were, they were unhappy with it. And there was, and so I said, if you're saying that it's this job or my blog and ability to tell true stories about my life, then you better find someone else to come in on Monday. And the words just came out of my mouth. Like I had not premeditated it. I didn't know what the meeting was going to be about. And, um, at the end, you know, it was sort of like a game of chicken of, you know, we were three weeks into a nine week session of camp and they couldn't find someone else by Monday. And so, you know, they said, well, just don't talk about the camp on the blog or, you know, we made some concessions, but that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story for me was I walked away from that meeting going, huh, this, the writing, the truth telling, like these stories, this is way more important to me than I thought. Like sometimes you don't know how important something is until it's put on the line. And I thought I literally would have walked away from my only source of income if it would have come down to this. That's interesting. And it took me some time after that to sort of switch into being self-employed and some other things. But I think that was definitely a pivotal like fork in the road moment for me. Oh my God. I love that scene. And I can totally, I, in my imagination, they're all like wearing little bow ties and going like, (laughs) 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 like in a sort of like stuffy uptight manner. And then there's like cool Nicole with her awesome blog. I choose freedom. Mic drop. (laughs) etc. I want to see like the movie version of that scene. Yeah. I mean, and I was young too. I was, I think I was like 24, you know, and it was, it was all the kind of like courage that you have at 24 where I like didn't have many bills or many, whatever that I was willing to walk away from this, but it was just, I, yeah, vividly remember it was this kind of pause in the conversation that wasn't really going anywhere other than they were, you know, harumphing at me, like you said, and it was just, (laughs) I don't, I said, I don't know what your bottom line here is, but if you're asking me to choose between this job and this blog, bye. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, that was, and I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot too when I sort of question my work in the world, you know, if I have moments of self-doubt or insecurity or imposter syndrome, which of course happens all the time, as it does for most people, to think, okay, this really is a deep-rooted thing. Like I am, this is the work that I'm supposed to be doing and I have to find a way to make this happen because clearly I was willing to walk away from all of my money in order to do this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just thought of another really quick story on this same topic. May I share? Yes, always. It's a, it's a story that uh, my friend Robert told me. This is another story that's that's part of the book um, around not getting the dream job that you thought you wanted and what happened. And I love this story. So what happened really briefly was uh, Robert is a singer and dancer and he works on Broadway and he you know, worked his ass off to get cast in his first Broadway show. I mean, it's unbelievably difficult, it's so competitive, but he did it. And a few years down the line, um, after performing in a couple shows, he had an opportunity to basically be part of a brand new Broadway show that was being developed. And it was like a legendary, you know, director and production team, Tony Award winning. I mean, like when they asked him, will you be part of the development process? It, it, It was like, you know, it was like God asking him, will you be part of my show? He was like, oh, my God, of course. Yes, yes, yes. So he, you know, is working his ass off. He's performing in, in one show and then he's going to other, you know, kind of rehearsals and other things for this other show. And he's like working double shifts and just like doing everything he can to impress them. And long story short, it, it comes to kind of the final round where now they're actually auditioning to create the cast to take the show to Broadway. And he doesn't get cast. He gets to like the final round and then they tell him, we're so sorry, you know, we're going a different direction and, and you won't be part of the show. And for him, it just felt like the, the most devastating rejection because he had, he had helped them. You know, he'd been part of the development. He had been there from day one. He'd been working so hard and he thought, of course, they're going to cast me, you know, to be on Broadway. Why wouldn't they? I've been here the whole time. And it was awful. What ended up happening though, which is, it's just, this is like blows my mind, is everyone thought this show was going to be a huge success. And the show bombed. It actually ended up closing like very shortly after it opened. It was it didn't do well at all. It was a financial failure and it closed. And Robert remembers reading in the newspaper, you know, the announcement that this show was closing. And, you know, meanwhile, he had gotten himself booked into another gig and he was doing fine. And, and he just remembers thinking like, whoa, you know, I all I wanted was to be cast in that show. And if I had gotten that job, I would be unemployed right now. And it's just such a, it's so interesting to look back at all these moments in our lives where we think we want this one thing so badly. And yet it might be a huge blessing that you don't get what you want or that you get called into that uncomfortable meeting with the harumphing bosses and they, they force you to confront something that you didn't realize. But all of this is to say, you know, in the moment when you're feeling rejected, it's so hard to remember that this might be the biggest blessing of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just that you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's coming next. Yeah. You have mm. no idea. I love that. So something else that I would love to hear about, you you shared a little bit about the process of, you know, finding a publisher for the book and like that part of the process. But I'm always interested when someone, cr- you know, creates a thing that 
you know, took a lot of work, a lot of different steps. Basically, the process of idea going from idea to completion, like what whether that's like through you talking about your experience with what it took for this book or just sort of like general ideas or like thoughts around what it takes to move from I have this idea to actually, you know, holding the finished book in your hand or, you know, whatever the end result is. Because I think, and I, I think we've talked about this before too, that like there's definitely a myth that, you know, it's just about, you know, pull out your calendar and schedule time for it the way that you would schedule a doctor's appointment. And of course, like you have to block off time too, but that it's it's both like, is that simple and not that simple? And so for you, for someone who has brought a lot of things to completion, you know, books of different types and classes and workshops and talks and, you know, all kinds of things, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Ooh, I have many thoughts for sure. Um, so, I mean, Yes, absolutely. With with anything that you want to create in your life, I mean, obviously, we have to set aside time for it, right? And we have to protect that time. I think that's, it's so simple. And yet it's so true. Uh, I know for me, if, if something is, is on my calendar, uh, it's probably going to happen. And if it's not on my calendar, if I haven't, you know, physically carved out time for it, it's probably not going to happen. So that is definitely important. Um, but going along with that is, you know, I, something that I do at the beginning of almost every project that I put onto my plate is I, I write down three reasons why I really want to finish this project. Um, and they can be financial reasons. They can be emotional reasons. They can be spiritual reasons. They can be, you know, community service legacy oriented reasons or whatever. But I write down three really specific, 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 specific reasons why. I want to do it. Um, and if I can't come up with three like compelling, honest reasons, then I know I probably shouldn't do this project because I'm probably going to lose steam and, and not be into it a week from now. Right. So writing down three reasons why, and then keeping those reasons somewhere where I can actually see them with my eyeballs is really helpful. Uh, a document, you know, on my desktop or a post-it note or something I printed out that I put on my clipboard. I think we need to continually remind ourselves, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Oh yeah, that's right. I'm doing it because reason number one, two, three. That's really helpful for me. You probably do something similar with, especially with your like crazy ass long hikes that you do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do think I think it's super important to be connected to your why. And again, it's a both and. I also think that sometimes the fact that I really want to do it is the only, is enough. It's, this might sound yeah. weird because like I, I mean, using the hiking as an example, sometimes I don't really know why I want to do something, but like if the, if the drive is like strong enough and it's a kind of thing that like if it's an idea that won't leave me alone, right? That's like I two weeks later, three weeks later, two months later, you know, whatever it is, like, you know what that feels like when you keep circling back to the same thing. Like sometimes I don't even know why I want to do something until I'm like into it. Um, so sometimes that's the case too. I don't know. Like I have to trust, like I love when I am able to like clarify the reasons or maybe the reasons at the beginning are just because this idea won't leave me alone. And I have to at least like take it to next steps to see like why I can't shake this. Yeah. Another thing I will say too is like, you know, this, this new book that I have coming out, that's out now, you're going to survive. This is, you know, it's a, it's a book book. It's a, I don't know how many pages it's, it's going to wind up being. It's, you know, 200, 300 pages. It's, it's a solid, solid ass book. Um, but that's, this is the first like full scale, you know, 
60,000 word nonfiction book that I've ever written. And I've been writing and being published for 10 years. And so another thing I want to mention is like, you know, when it comes to finishing creative projects, um, I'm a really big fan with starting with the smallest possible project you can envision and finishing that and then building incrementally from there. So as just an example, um, you know, seven, eight years ago, I self-published an ebook that was 15 pages long. <laughs> it was the, the tiniest, tiniest little teensy, teensy book. And I was really proud of it and I loved it. And I just shared, you know, a couple of little quick things and, and that was that. And I, so that was my first book. It was like a little baby book. And it felt so great to complete that. And finishing that teensy project gave me the confidence to tackle something a little bigger and then a little bigger and then a little bigger. So, you know, we we often see someone creating a work of art or hiking a hundred miles or whatever, and it seems like they just were born yesterday and boom, now they're doing this. But there, there's always a there's always a breadcrumb trail of, of so many other smaller steps that led up to that moment. And it's I think it's really important to remember that. Starting small is so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I I love the idea of giving your. I talk about this all the time. Giving yourself permission to experiment with things. Like I think about this even, and I know this isn't a work example, but when I quit drinking, the thought of I'm never drinking again forever was the most overwhelming and just completely impossible, unfathomable thing that I could like. It, 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 that was like a reality that I couldn't even wrap my mind around. And so, you know, what it took for me was okay. I'm going to do this for five weeks, and you know, that's a completely arbitrary time frame. But I found it to be so helpful to be like, okay, just try this. Like, let's just see how a couple weeks goes. Not like, okay, from now until forever. Like, there was just something about that. And I think the same can be true for creative projects. It was, you know, actually when I first started the podcast. I had thought about this for about a year, a year and a half. I had wanted to do it before, you know, the very first episode. (laughs) You were guest number one. Um, But before that happened, I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And one of my concerns was I don't want to start something that what if I don't actually like it or what if other people don't like it and I'm just committed to it indefinitely. Like we have this idea that once you start something that that has to be the thing that you do forever, which I think is not true. But again, in trying to not be flaky, right? Like I'm conscious of that too. And what it took for me to give myself permission to start this new thing was to be super, super honest, even, you know, in the intros of those episodes, like this is an experiment, like this is season one. If you like this, let me know. If I like this and you like this, then we'll keep going. But I was very open to it being a one and done project. And if for whatever reason it didn't work out, then it was just an experiment. Like I'm a huge fan of giving yourself exactly what you just said, like some kind of a small version of it to do first, because you don't know how you feel about something until you actually do it. Absolutely. Yeah. This is something I I think about a lot and that I encourage like a lot of my friends to try. Like if you've got, you know, let's say you've just got this idea and you're like, I really think I I think I want to write a memoir or I think I want to write a book about X, Y, and Z, or I think I want to produce a conference about women and feminism and money or, or whatever. You've just got this idea that won't leave you alone. I think that's awesome. And what I always encourage people to try is like, okay, so take that idea and shrink it down to like the the one one room version like not the not the 40 story skyscraper but like what would be like the one room version the stripped down version the tiny version of that idea and maybe it's okay instead of you know booking a venue and spending thousands of dollars and producing a conference in six months, 
I'm going to start by hosting one dinner party where I give like a mini talk on feminism and finances to six of my girlfriends and see how that feels. Um, and just start so small, start with something that's small and achievable and build and build and build from there. And this is like such duh advice, but it's something that we all forget <laughs> constantly. Um, so I'm, I'm just such a big fan of, of the tiny book, the tiny idea, the tiny workshop, start tiny and then, and then check in with yourselves and, and see, is this as fun as I thought it was going to be? Am I still excited about this? Okay, good. What's the next brick that I can lay, you know, to build my skyscraper? Yeah. I mean, I agree that it's it's funny. The things that are the most true often feel like, oh, duh, this is such a cliche. Or I mean, well, cliches are cliche for a reason. And just because it's duh, so simple or so obvious doesn't mean that we don't need reminding of it all the time. I mean, for me, I think the thing that stands in the way of doing, you know, following my own advice and your advice in this area is it's often ego related that, you know, I think it has to be some huge, sexy thing or nothing. And right. that I forget that it's awesome to do something that's just a couple hours or just this thing, you know, and that is such a good way to, you know, to test it. I love that. Yes. Tiny is good. So as we near the end of the year, I would love to hear how you're feeling about 2018. What are you excited about making or doing any goals or intentions or big dreams or tiny things that are on your mind for, you know, work or life or what you want to experience live next year? What's on your mind? Wow. Okay. So <laughs> normally around this time of the year, like the time that we're recording this, you know, September, October, and even into November, usually by this time of the year, I feel pretty clear about what I'm doing in the upcoming year. I've, you know, I've got a plan, a business plan or a personal plan or whatever. This year, that is not the case. Um, I actually feel like 2018 is a mystery. I feel like it's kind of just wide open. Um, I feel a little nervous actually, because I don't really have a plan. I mean, I, I could certainly just replicate this year and kind of do it over again and then do a lot of the same things I did this year, but I feel like I'm ready for a big change. Uh, and it's, for me, I think it's going to be around working a lot less uh, and having so much more space in my life for reading and relaxing and fun and and like very personal pursuits that are not directly business or work related um and just kind of having a lot more space so yeah you know what does that look like i don't know yet i am feeling very commitment phobic right now like i've i'm very hesitant to schedule anything for next year <laughs> i just i want to just leave it open i think i want to get through kind of the book launch period and and all of that and then maybe see where i'm at in december and maybe start making some grown-up plans i don't know mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll see yeah i mean but i also think there's something to be said for you know seasons of things like it sounds like you did a lot of work this year and that necessarily isn't isn't necessarily sustainable year after year after year right that it's okay maybe there's some downtime and then maybe you see what comes up right that it doesn't always have to be go 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 all the time exactly yeah this this year 2017 was an immensely like high output busy year for me um all great stuff, like all really fun, beautiful stuff, but just a lot. And it was, I really overloaded myself, to be honest. And I, I put way too many things on my plate and there was, there was this book deal. And then I, I ended up writing several full length books, uh, 
collaborating with clients. So I actually ended up writing like numerous books this year, um, as well as other client projects and, and teaching and retreats and developing a new online class. And, you know, just, there was just a lot, it was a lot of stuff all happening all at the same time. Um, so yeah, I think a part of me is just like, I really just want to cool my jets for a second and like think and breathe and catch my breath. And I'm also like, you know, it's sort of typical to like make your plan for the next year in like November, December, but maybe I'm just not ready. You know, maybe I'm going to take a second off and then I'll sort of formulate my plan for 2018 once it's February or something Mm -hmm. like that and just have a bit of a delayed start. Um, So we'll see. I, I don't have a clear answer yet, but what about you? What's your vision for next year? That is a very good question. Um, I am also working on that right now uh, after getting clear. It's funny, hitting the two-year mark of the podcast was, I guess all sort of milestones are arbitrary, but it felt like Oh, this is a consistent body of work. You know, hitting 100 episodes, which happened right around the two year mark, um, felt like this isn't an experiment anymore. This is something that I know that I really love that has evolved. You know, I'm so grateful to all of the guests who have given time and had these conversations, you know, you included, of course. And, you know, the combination of hitting the two year mark, doing the first two live events and absolutely loving them and getting such good feedback about it, you know, and doing a couple of new things like introducing a new, um, funding level in Patreon where we're doing live Google Hangouts. Like there's just a couple of things that felt to me like pushing myself, which is great, right? Like I was definitely scared of doing the Google Hangouts. I was scared of doing the live events, like pushing yourself to do something new is uncomfortable, of course. And, um, and all of that going, not just going well in terms of feedback, that's always nice, of course, but feeling good to me and feeling like this is the work that I want to be doing in the world, um, feels like, okay, so what does the next step look like, right? Because again, like you said, I could replicate exactly what happened for this year, but I want to do more than that, more live events. I have a vision of doing um, a multi-day kind of slumber party style, early December, you know, 2018 winter retreat here in Bend, kind of like all this stuff that we're talking about, end of year stuff and just everything we do on the podcast and in the live events, but, you know, together all staying in a house or something. So I have a vision of something like that. And there's just some things like that that aren't really clarified for me, but things that I think would be not just fun, but I continue to believe more and more strongly in just like this mission of having more honest conversations. It's one of those things that when I'm being self-doubty feels not that important or feels like, well, I'm not like selling someone something or you're going to walk away with these three tangible, whatever. It's kind of the anti that, right? But like that there is a value in just saying what's true and what you're going through and have been through and having someone else hear you and you hear them and build connections and just like this continual reminder that none of us are alone. There's something I think more powerful in that even than I initially realized. And seeing this go from online to offline was like the reminder that I needed like, oh, right, this is really powerful, even if it's not quite as tangible as come to this thing, walk away with this thing, right? And so that's sort of a challenge for me is to learn how to talk about my work um, in a way that gives it the value that I think that it deserves, but also takes into account that it is a little bit ephemeral. And um, yeah, this is kind of a long answer because I've really been thinking about this a lot. But so I don't really know specifically what that looks like, but I know that there is more and bigger. It's basically the opposite of your answer, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. You're, oh my gosh. Uh, it is raining so hard. <laughs> it's raining so hard. And I have to tell you, I think that someone left a bag of cookies outside on a table and it's just getting soaked. And it's like the saddest little thing. 
Cookie Sad, saggy, pouring rain in Portland. Oh, no. Well, we need the rain, though. Yeah, no, I mean, fires. all the fires. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so rain aside, continue. Um, I was going to say, you know what? Your show is so awesome. I am a huge fan of Real Talk Radio. I listen all the time. I am constantly moved and touched and uh, just just delighted by the amazing stories that people share that are so, so so real. I mean, for lack of a, another word and absolutely they're providing value. And if you ever forget that, please email me if you're having a self doubting moment and I will send you gifts and magic mic photos. And I will remind you that you're awesome. I appreciate that. See, everyone needs an Alex. Um, <laughs> okay. So I would like to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. If you are down for some questions. I'm down. Sorry about the rain. Everyone no, it's, it's all good. I'll wind up putting something in the intro too. Like halfway through the skies open up. It's fine. <laughs> Um, what's one helpful lesson that you have learned over the past year? Oh my God. There was literally just like Zeus thunder and lightning just now. Whoa. Okay. A valuable lesson I've learned in the past year. Yeah. I would say, hmm, it's something that my mom once said to me, which is when you feel like you can't possibly afford to stop working. You're so busy. You couldn't possibly afford to take a break, not even for one day. That's exactly when you need to take a break. Most of all, Mm. that's something that I've learned uh, that she tried to teach me when I was like 10, but it took me a while before I learned it. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. So I often ask people, um, about sort of who they love to follow on social media. And for you, since you are not on social media, I will ask you two kind of, I guess, tangential questions. One, are there anyone whose email newsletters you super love or emails that you super love receiving? Because I love receiving yours. So I'm curious whose you love. And then also, I would just love kind of a check-in of how has it felt this year to not be on social media? Oh, it's awesome. Um, It's delightful. I highly recommend trying it even just for a week. Um, It's a beautiful thing, unless social media brings you joy. And in which case, rock on and and keep doing it. But yeah, being no social media has been delightful. Um, And in terms of people that I follow or people that I enjoy hearing from, I, I don't get his newsletter, but I'm such a big fan of this bodybuilder named Kai Green. And I know that is like the most random thing. And like, what's funny is I'm not really even into bodybuilding as a sport. Like I can kind of take it or leave it, but he is so fascinating to me because he has this incredible story of like growing up in the foster care system and like all this trauma and loss and, and everything and awful. And he's like transformed his life and he's this incredible painter and artist, but then he's also a bodybuilder and he like, he views his body as like another canvas to create art upon. And he's just so trippy and fascinating and, and just bizarre. And he has his own clothing line and sneakers. And I'm just obsessed with him. I think he's brilliant. So I recommend Kai Green if you ever want just some really intense inspiration. He makes these like inspirational videos on his website and stuff like that. That's amazing. Highly <laughs> recommend it. If you have a free afternoon all to yourself, what's your favorite way to spend it? Ooh, I would say I would go to a yoga class and then I would go to my favorite place in the whole wide world, which is called the Barefoot Sage. 
which is a magical place where you go inside and you sit on a couch and it's like soft, gentle music and candles and chocolate. And then they soak your feet in a little bucket and then they massage your feet while you sit on the couch. Yeah, I have been there with you. That is a magical place. I, if I was a millionaire, I would go there every single day. I would just never leave. Maybe mm-hmm. I would just be literally be there all day. Just 24 seven foot massage. <laughs> 24 seven. I would, I would develop like gout in my legs from never moving and I'd be okay with that. What is your favorite dessert these days? Ooh, favorite dessert. I would say here in Portland, we have this place called Toadstool Cupcakes And they're these mini little cupcakes and they are, it's not a normal cupcake though. It's like, it's the cake, but then there's like sort of a filling and then a ganache topping. And they're so good. I think about them in my dreams. So in your millionaire life, you'll have people bring you those, deliver them to the barefoot stage while you're getting your foot massages. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Um, Has there been a book that you read this year that you think everyone should read? Ooh, okay. Um, I'm really, really digging the Throne of Glass series. It's so good. I can't. Yeah, the one you recommended to me. It's so good. Um, You know, I, I read a book just before I started reading that. It was also fiction. It's, uh, I think the author's name is Leanne Moriarty. She, I believe, wrote the book Big Little Lies, which was then turned into a TV show. And she wrote another book called, I think it's called The Husband's Secret. That's the one that I read. And ugh, it's, it was one of those books where her writing is so good. Like, I just appreciate her writing, the characterization. It's a total page turner. It's also like really violent and upsetting at times. So it was one of those books where I was like, this is so upsetting. I don't want to read it, but I have to keep reading it kind of things. Um, But for anyone who loves sort of like, kind of like a murder mystery type of thing with a lot of like real human emotion, um, it's a, I mean, it's a great book. Um, but if you're easily squeamish or upset, then like me, no. this does not sound like a Nicole no. approved book. No. <laughs> not, it is not Nicole approved. Yeah. Definitely. If you want just a total like silly romp, um, I really enjoyed the book called On Your Knees. And I'm blanking on the author's name, but I'll send it to you and you'll put it in the show notes. But it's just like a, a silly, fun, escapist romance novel set in New York City, if you're into that sort of thing. I am, in fact, into that sort of thing. You are so into that sort of thing. I know. (laughs) Is there anything that hasn't come up in this conversation that you really want to mention? Hmm, that I love you. Oh, I love you too. (laughs) You're so great. Um, If you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say as a call to action, you know, circling back to the very beginning of this conversation, um, do something before the end of this year that just sounds like fun to you. I, I really recommend it. You know, it's, it's been a tough year for so many of us for so many reasons. 
if you're listening to this show, you know, you're probably a deeply caring, compassionate person. You've probably done a ton of activism work this year. You've probably worked really hard on being a good parent and friend and sister and brother and role model. And you've probably, you know, you've probably worked your ass off. (laughs) You're probably tired. And I would just say, you know, give yourself one evening, one day, one week, um, to just celebrate life and have fun because that's part of life too. Mm, I love it. Yes, that's your homework, everyone, and my homework too. Something really fun before the end of the year. Ah! So what is the best place for people to find you and say hi online? And where can they find and buy the book this week? Whoop, whoop. Yeah, you can find me on my website. It's alexandrafranzen.com. Not a very creative website name, just my name.com. You can contact me. My email address is there. You can get the book. It's called You're Going to Survive. It has an orange cover. It's vibrant, eye-catching. And you can get it on Amazon, on IndieBound, on Books A Million, BarnesandNoble.com, hopefully at your local bookstore. And uh, yeah, look for it. I hope you enjoy it. And uh if you don't, then, you know, maybe don't write a one-star review if you can, if you can restrain yourself. <laughs> oh, man. So I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Everyone, go buy Alex's book. Alex, you're the best. I love you. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. What a joy. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And huge shout out to the awesome Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like you. If you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus a lot of fun other opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. (laughs) 